This morning we're continuing in a sermon series that we started last week, simply titled Follow. And uh, we're going to take the next weeks ahead to try and get ourselves centered back on mission as individuals, what we are created to do, what God has called us to do, and that is to follow. And so today we continue on with that sermon series. I encourage you, if you weren't able to join us last week, take a few minutes this next week, a few minutes, 30 minutes maybe, thing, and uh, listen to last week's message to get caught up so we're all moving forward together. I'd ask this morning that you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, beginning with the 35th verse. Mark chapter 4, beginning with the 35th verse. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word today. I ask that you would now take your word and inspire our hearts and our minds. Grant us application and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my good friends walked into my house and he had cowboy boots on. Now you have to understand, this is a city boy thing. If you would have asked me, if I ever would have thought I would have seen him in cowboy boots, it would have been a resounding no. I mean, this guy is a... If you were to take a poll at his office, I'm almost positive that he would come up last for those most likely to ever wear cowboy boots. I mean, this is a city boy to the point where, you know those do-it-yourself projects that I describe myself trying to do? He doesn't even try. Think. This is a city boy through and through. Last person I would ever expect to wear cowboy boots. Yet, he shows up at my house. What is he wearing? Cowboy boots. Now, if I would have given him the gift of boots months ago, do you know where those boots would be today? In his closet or my closet, or back at the store. But because of the giver, now that gift is being worn. You see, the giver completely changes the gift. It's all about the identity of the giver. Some of you, if we came over to your house today, on your refrigerator, you might have a little scribble on your refrigerator. To you, it's a gift. Why? Because of the giver. It may not be artwork to anyone else. But to you, it's artwork because of the identity of the giver. You see, it's the identity of the giver that completely almost determines the worth of the gift. Not only that, but it's the identity of the caller that really gives proof, that really gives meaning to the call. Think of it for a second. Some of you have received a command before to go and do something, and you didn't do it. But then when somebody else gave the exact same command, you immediately went and did it. Why? Because of the identity of the caller. You see, the identity of the caller completely changes 
the call. Today we're going to take a step back to try and understand who is this that's laying this call on our lives? Who is calling us to urgent abandonment? How dare someone say, come follow me? How dare someone say, be my apprentice? Who is it that's asking us to be their apprentice? Our first what-if question leads us into who is calling us. What if the one calling us to follow is the king of the universe? What if the one calling us to follow is the king of the universe? And this morning we look to Mark chapter 4 to begin to understand the identity of the one calling us. Mark chapter 4 is a very familiar story. We find Jesus with his disciples, and now Jesus is in a boat and they're traveling to the other side, but a storm comes up. The storm comes up, and it's a bad storm that we get here from the reading. It's a point to the point where the waves are coming into the boat. Now, take into consideration, it's not like they had a bunch of rookies out on the water. These were fishermen that were with Jesus. They're used to the seas. They're used to spending time on the water. Yet, these men are scared because they're facing a storm. This morning, the whole point here in Mark chapter 4 is not about the storm. The whole point is not about the disciples in the boat facing the storm. The whole point is about the one who calms the storm. You see, there's a great danger this morning. We could take Mark chapter 4 and we could actually make it about us. This actually happens routinely. And actually in a couple of commentaries of studying this passage, it does the very thing. What does it do? It tries to make us now, make us into an allegory and say, hey, you're in the midst of life storms. You're just like the disciples. And what this is all about, this is all about believing more. Because if you believe more, what's going to happen? It's going to be peace and be still. But there's great danger in taking the story that way. Because real life tells us differently, right? We all know that more faith doesn't calm the storm. We all know those who are faithfully following Jesus Christ are not going to be free of any storms. Think of the Apostle Paul for a second. Did the Apostle Paul just need to believe a little bit more? The Apostle Paul was facing beatings. He was facing health issues. He was facing constant just turmoil in his life. Was the Apostle Paul not believing enough? It's not that the Apostle Paul needed to have more faith and all of a sudden everything would have been just fine. But the Apostle Paul just resolved to do one thing. That's in the Philippians 3 passage that you're all supposed to be memorizing. The Apostle Paul resolved to do one thing, and you're all supposed to come back next week with the answer to what's the one thing he resolved to do. Because the storm was not going to be still, but yet the Apostle Paul resolved to do one thing. And it's all, he resolved to do one thing. Why? Because of the identity of the one who called him. And so this morning, Mark chapter 4 is all about the identity of Jesus. And then there's implications for us when we understand the identity of Jesus. Well, who is this in the boat? Think of what Jesus is doing. There's not even a good way to illustrate this because of the magnitude. Think of Mother Nature. You and I have, have seen Mother Nature at work in a variety of ways. We see it every day on the news almost. A, a hurricane here, a tornado there, a, a snowstorm there. Now, with modern technology, we have come to a place where we don't control Mother Nature, but what do we do? We control ourselves in the midst of Mother Nature. 
So now we're able to what? Know in advance when the storm is coming. We've got better insulation, better homes now, so we can put up with more storms. But yet, no one has yet been able to stand out on the Kelloland ball and say, storm, be still. All we can do is predict when the storm is coming. That's all Jesus does. He says, peace, be still. And what happens? The text tells us the wind ceased and there was great calm. I mean, think of how awesome it is when you've got a screaming two-year-old at home and someone just says, peace, be still. And all is calm. How many would look at that and go, whoa, what's going on here? Thing, you've got some serious power. How much more? This is not a storming two-year-old. This is a ravaging sea. And yet Jesus says, peace, be still. Notice what Jesus does not do here. Jesus does not appeal to a higher authority. And this is extremely important. Think back in in history when they used to have rainmakers that came to towns and stuff to try and help produce rain. What did rainmakers always try and do? They tried to orient the spirit world in a certain way. So they would appeal to certain spirits, right? And try and get them to interact a certain way and then rain would come. Today, if you go into Central Africa or many other countries and there's different healings taking place and and different uh, groups like that, and you go to someone for healing and they call out for healing, what are they always doing? In the name of Allah, let this happen. Or even in in a Christian setting, if you go to a place, what are they always doing? In the name of Jesus, Satan be gone. What are you doing? You're appealing to a higher authority. Jesus appeals to no higher authority. He just says, peace, be still, because there is no higher authority. Jesus is the authority. There's no one to appeal to because he's been given all authority. He's existed for eternity. This Jesus, the identity of Jesus is he is the owner of the universe. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning that, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. That Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his po- the power of his word. In other words, Jesus created all things, Jesus owns all things, and he basically controls everything by his word. He's completely authoritative. He did not need to appeal to a higher being because he is the higher being. It's all about the identity of Jesus. And there's no other response, right? If, if someone says, peace, be still, and it happens, what are you going to do? Well, who's this? What? Where, where does he get the right to do this? Or how, how does he do this? Whenever there's great power exerted, you always look to the one who exerts power. Who is this? Who is this king that's placing the call? C.S. Lewis spent a great deal of time, a great author, C.S. Lewis, spent a great deal of time writing about the identity of Jesus and in various books arguing about this is what it all comes down to, who you say Jesus is. And so C.S. Lewis spells out for us in a variety of ways talking about the claims that Jesus made. And this morning I just want to take a few moments and turn to C.S. Lewis because it's his material and he says it a lot better than I can say it. And so C.S. Lewis spend some time asking this question. How are we to resolve the historical problems set forward to us by the recorded sayings of Jesus 
and the acts of this man. You see, C.S. Lewis sees a dilemma. On one hand, you've got the great moral teacher of Jesus. And everybody recognizes Jesus as a great moral teacher. Even those who are opposed to Christianity still see Jesus as a great moral teacher. You go to many cultures around the world, their morality is built off of the teachings of Jesus. And we, even in our culture today, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum and how we should be God-centered, not God-centered, whatever, there's no way to deny that in our moral fabric, in our country's starting, there was some inkling of the teachings of Jesus. Think about it, even in a non-Christian home, well, do to your brother like you'd bro- like your brother to do to you. The parent didn't make that up. That came from Jesus. And so there's this dilemma on one hand, Jesus is this great moral teacher that everybody recognizes is revolutionary in how he talks about peacemaking, how he talks about relationships, how he talks about the handling of money, how he talks about it's the condition of the heart, not just the action. He's a great moral teacher, but at the exact same time, this Jesus is making some profound claims. He's saying some wacky stuff that C.S. Lewis argues that, okay, if the wacky stuff is not true, then this great moral teaching actually should be pushed aside because of the one making it. Because if these wacky claims are not to be true, in all honesty, we would just lock this person up because that's how profound the claims are. And so I just want to talk this morning about a couple of the claims that Jesus makes and C.S. Lewis points out for us. The first claim that C.S. Lewis points to is when Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And C.S. Lewis writes the following. He says, Now it is quite natural for a man to forgive something you do to him. Thus, if someone cheats me out of $5, it is quite possible and reasonable for me to say, Well, I forgive him. We will say no more about it. But, but, what does Jesus do? Jesus jumps in and forgives sins even when it's not against him. So C.S. Lewis is arguing here that, yes, it makes a lot of sense. If someone wrongs you, you forgive them. But how are you going to respond if your friend comes and says, hey, you're forgiven? Your friend does the forgiving on behalf of you. What are you going to say to your friend? Well, who are you to forgive them? They didn't do anything to you. They did it to me. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus steps in and he says, your sins are forgiven. He again does not say in the name of the Father, your sins are forgiven. He just says, your sins are forgiven. So what do the religious leaders do? Oh, oh, slow down here. Only God has the right to forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus is claiming to be God. No one else has the right to forgive sins, but yet what's Jesus doing? Walking around, we see it multiple times in the gospel, your sins are forgiven. A radical claim. He's claiming to be God. Next thing we see Jesus make a just mysterious statement. Jesus says in multiple times, he says, I keep on sending you prophets and wise men. Hold on. So Jesus is 30, 33 years old, somewhere in that, in that area. And Jesus is saying to a lot of the religious leaders, hey, those prophets, I sent them to you. Well, you have to understand that there was not a prophet to the nation of Israel for 400 years. Yet here's this 30-year-old male saying, I sent those prophets. <laughs> okay, uh, no thing. You're in the womb for nine months? I don't know about the math on that, but somewhere around that neck of the woods. 
and yet you've sent someone 400 years ago? It's because Jesus is claiming to have existed for eternity. He's always been. And next thing we see Jesus do, and this one is, is really interesting that C.S. Lewis points this out because this is something that we often set aside. Jesus says to his disciples, no one need fast while I am here. And then C.S. Lewis says, who is this man who remarks that his mere presence suspends all normal rules? Who is this person who can suddenly tell the school they can have a half holiday? Think about what Jesus is doing here. Every religion around the world has some sort of fasting, some sort of thing where you, you do something to get your, your spirit in the right condition or you're, you're doing something to, to plea before God, you're trying to discipline yourself. Every religion has it, but no one has ever come and said, hey, you can stop fasting for a little while while I'm here. Not even the great prophets in the other religions have done that. Why? Because all of those great prophets are what? Pointing to someone greater. But Jesus comes and he says, hey, why are you fasting? I'm right here. Think of the claim Jesus is making. He's God. There's no need to fast because the one you want is right here in your presence. Jesus is making radical claims. He's claiming to be the God-man. He's claiming to have existed for eternity. He's claiming to have all authority. This is the one who's calling you today. This is the one who's saying, be my apprentice. Follow me. And it's the identity of that one that completely authorizes the call. It's the identity of the one calling that now changes the call to it demands a response. If the one who controls Mother Nature, if the one who controls the forgiveness of sins, if the one who has set all things in motion throughout all of eternity is calling, what are we going to do? You have no choice but to answer. This morning, it's all about the identity of the caller. Jesus is the King of the universe. But too often, too often, you and I have treated Jesus like a buffet. And that's why you and I need a mindset change today. The mindset change we need this next week is very simply, Jesus is not a buffet. Jesus is not a buffet. So often, we like things about Jesus, right? We like certain stories that get read about Jesus. It actually makes us feel good and, and it gives us hope, right? It gives us hope when living in the midst of brokenness. But then other times, it's like, well, you know, Jesus was living in a little culture that was behind the times. He wasn't completely understanding yet. Let's, let's just wait on that. So we set that part aside of Jesus. Jesus is not a buffet. What we see here in Hebrews 1, Mark 4, is Jesus is the king of the universe. He has all power and all authority. And the truth of the matter this morning is this. You and I treat Jesus much more like Dr. Phil than we do the owner of the universe. Think of Dr. Phil for a moment. Dr. Phil has someone come on and it's an awesome story. And At the end of the story, everybody's crying. These people have been reconciled together. And Oh, Dr. Phil was amazing. He's brought this family back together. And Dr. Phil's got your emotions all worked up. And now, now you want to go and see Dr. Phil. And now when you listen to Dr. Phil, you start to take some of Dr. Phil's advice a little bit. But then, you know, one day Dr. Phil's talking and you're it's like, well, that's a little bit out there. I'm not... Two, I like Dr. Phil, but I don't have to do that part because Dr. Phil's not here with me. 
So we're able to kind of pick and choose what we want from Dr. Phil. And when Dr. Phil gets us emotionally excited, we listen a little bit more. We do the exact same with Jesus. Jesus' stories get us a little emotionally excited, so we tune in a little bit more and take a little bit more. But then at other times, it's like, well, not all's going well right now, so therefore, meh, maybe not so much. Or, don't really like this. You see, the beauty of Dr. Phil is, is we can take Dr. Phil on our understanding. We can take Dr. Phil on, we set the conditions, right? We decide how much to watch Dr. Phil. We decide when to turn Dr. Phil off. We decide which pieces of advice to follow. And we've tried to do the same with Jesus. We'll come to Jesus on our conditions. Yet Jesus lays it out very clearly. Follow me. We looked at it last week multiple times, just calling for urgent abandonment. We cannot come to the king of the universe, the one who holds all power and authority, on our own conditions. But we can only come on his conditions if he is the king of the universe. If he is the king of the universe this morning, that demands a response from you and I. A response that says, this guy is ludicrous or he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, there's implications for our lives. And that leads us to our second what if this morning. And that is, what if we focused on the caller and not our circumstances? What if we focused on the caller and not our circumstances? This morning, we see the disciples in the midst of the storm, and Jesus says, peace, be still. And, and the disciples are thinking in their own minds, right? Well, if Jesus loves us, why is he not waking up and solving the storm issue? I mean, right? If someone loved us, they'd wake up and they'd solve the problem. And so then we get into the mindset of saying what? Well, I'm in the midst of this storm. Jesus is allowing it to happen. How can a loving God allow me to be in the midst of a storm? There must not be a loving God. I'm going to set God aside. Because we've allegorized these things of Jesus. The story is not about us. It's about Jesus being king of the storm. This narrative that we have here from Jesus is not normative. What I mean by that is this. This story happens, but that doesn't mean it's always going to happen that way. Sometimes in Scripture you've got commands where Jesus says, hey, um, do X. Other times in Scripture you've got stories that says people were interacting and X, Y, Z happened. When Scripture gives us a story, it's telling us what happened. It's not saying, well, whenever this type of thing happens, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Narrative is not normative. So, following Christ is not necessarily always going to calm the storms. We're not called to live in just no storms, but we're called to keep our eyes on the caller in the midst of the storm. Could Jesus intervene today and solve the storms? Absolutely. And it's, and it's a mystery, and it's not just a mystery, let's be honest. It's a painful mystery for why he doesn't intervene and solve some of the storms. And there's just no good answers for why he doesn't intervene and, and solve some of the storms. But we do know one thing, that he has conquered the ultimate storm, and that is this. He's conquered death. No one else, again, another radical claim Jesus makes, no one else has ever claimed to die, rise again, and stay alive. But Jesus makes the claim that he has conquered 
the ultimate storm. So therefore, because Jesus has conquered the ultimate storm in the midst of our storms here on earth, we can keep our focus on the caller because we know that the caller will ultimately bring us through the ultimate storm, and that is death. Because He has conquered death. This morning, there's no guarantee that the storms will go away when we answer the call. But there is one guarantee. That is that the caller will be present with us in the midst of the storms. And so that's where our vision and our focus has to be. Is we've got to stay focused on the caller rather than our circumstances. It happens all the time, doesn't it? We look around us and it's just like chaos. We get, and then we get lost in the chaos. What we've done is we've taken our eyes off of the prize. Jesus Himself. Jesus is asking us to trust and to continue following Him in the midst of the storm because He has conquered the ultimate storm. The identity of the caller completely changes the call. And this morning, the call and the claim made on your life and my life is to follow Him, to be His apprentice. If anybody else ever came up and said, hey, abandon everything. Revolve your life's priorities. Revolve your relationships. Revolve your thought patterns. Revolve all of that around me. If anybody ever came up, we'd say, ah, no thanks. But when the one who comes is the king of the universe, the one who comes knows everything and beyond that has died for everyone and has conquered the grave, when that one comes calling, that changes the call and demands a response. A response of apprenticeship. Of saying, I want to be like Him. I want to know things like He would know things. I want to do things the way He would do things. I can't believe my friend is going to wear cowboy boots. Do you know how uncomfortable and uncool cowboy boots are? I don't know if they serve any practical purpose. Yet, he'll wear cowboy boots all because of the giver. Following will never be comfortable. Following will never be cool. But we actually don't follow Jesus to be comfortable. We don't follow Jesus to be cool. We follow Jesus because he has called us and because who He is. Today is the day to put on your cowboy boots. Today is the day to be an apprentice of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our beautiful Savior, the One who has died on our behalf. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You that You have called us, that You have seen us in the midst of our sin, and You have still called us. Almighty God, we come before you this morning asking that you'd refresh in our minds and in our hearts a vision of you. We pray, O oh Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to keep focused upon you. Lord, I pray for those this morning that are in the midst of a storm. Lord, I pray for those in this morning where the circumstances are, are seeming like they're drowning them. God, I ask that you would break in and be their confidence. I ask, O oh Lord, that you would break in this morning and enable those who are in the midst of a storm to focus on you. God, thank you for conquering death and giving us the ultimate joy of eternal life. We praise you and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.